0: Hey there, podcast listeners, welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's episode of Engendered, our guest is Lisa Fischel-Walovic. Lisa is an attorney who has represented battered women for almost 30 years. She is also the author of numerous publications, including her recent book, Traumatic Divorce and Separation, just recently published by Oxford University Press this past March. She helped to organize the first criminal court that specialized in domestic violence in New York. Before becoming an attorney, Lisa obtained her master's in social work and worked in hospital social work, which included advocacy and counseling for battered women. Lisa also currently teaches courses in family violence and child maltreatment at the City University of New York in John Jay's graduate program in forensic psychology. She is here with us today to speak about her new book and how divorce impacts families differently, especially for those experiencing high risk factors of domestic violence, mental illness, and or substance abuse, and the risks and harms that they face in the process. So welcome, Lisa. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you for joining us. Let's get started. Okay. Your background is very unusual and unique amongst professionals who practice in family law. Thank you. Uh, You have both a law degree and a social work degree. That's right, yeah. You're also an academic teaching family violence, child abuse and neglect at the City University of New York, John Jay College. Can you walk us through your professional career and how you came to move from social work into law, and what people or incidents you might have encountered that might have influenced that decision.
1: Well, I started out as a hospital social worker, and I really had wanted to do a lot of advocacy when I encountered situations where people were women were being abused, where there was domestic violence, there weren't the resources. Systemically, there was no way to, um, to help them. And it was just appalling to me. And I really felt after a while that becoming an attorney would be the next step in terms of advocacy. In my book on traumatic divorce and separation, I begin with talking about the first time I encountered a situation where a patient had to, you know, was, was abused, severely abused. And she was hospitalized. And he had almost killed her, really. And the beatings were escalating. He'd never been arrested before. And then. You know, it was a really terrible situation. I tried. She wanted to leave. She wanted to leave with her children, and there were four, in 1980, there were four domestic violence beds in the shelter system in all of New York City, in the five boroughs. And, of course, all of them were filled. So eventually she returned to him, which was really a terrible eye-opener. The prosecutor didn't really want to take it seriously. ACS, at that point it was called BCW, Child Protective Services, didn't see why he wasn't a good father just because he was abusive. And it was all the things that really related to my work later in domestic violence. So after a time, I really felt that in terms of the issues that I was interested in and the kind of change I wanted to affect,
0: I felt that becoming an attorney was the next step. Wow. Well, thank you for making that decision. (laughs) Thank you. Well, by the end of the conversation, I'm sure our listeners will understand why that's such a... uh, Positive experience for survivors and and children in New York City, but but I know right now that that, that well, I think am, I also am really, grateful for I mean, your decision.
1: You. Oh, thank you! But I really use my social work skills all the time. Not that I'm going to be a therapist to my clients, but I understand when they've been exposed to trauma and what trauma looks like and what symptoms of trauma, traumatic exposure are. So, um, in that sense, it really enhances my work all the time.
0: Your book which is entitled Traumatic Divorce and Separation, The Impact of Domestic Violence and Substance Abuse in Custody and Divorce. In it, you address... um, Which is published by Oxford University Press. I should (laughs) say
1: that or my editor will be upset. (laughs) In
0: it, you address problems that you state come from the legal system failing to recognize the traumatic nature of families at risk. How are they at risk? How so?
1: Well, separation is a very critically critical time for battered women. Typically, so the batter is beginning to lose control because she's leaving, so the violence can really escalate. And so what gets categorized as situational couples' violence or separation instigated, um, that really minimizes the risk. So it's a very dangerous time. I have found that the criminal courts have really improved in terms of their response to domestic violence. There's more training. There's more funding for, you know, Violence Against Women Act. The federal laws specifically put in place training for judges and law enforcement and prosecutors, and that's very important. I think, conversely, the family courts have really lagged behind, and you're seeing the same families. Sometimes we do have integrated courts where they're hearing you know, divorce plus and orders of protection and custody plus the criminal piece of it. But if there isn't a criminal piece of it, there are very few courts that handle and specialize with the kind of resources that are necessary in terms of child custody and domestic violence. And I think systemically, that's a real missing piece. And we don't there. Are I think four. The last time when I was writing this book, there were four pilot projects. We need much more. We need to have. The results of their research. Uh, we need services in place for these families. So I think it's a
0: real lack on the family court side. Are you saying that the court's typical response to domestic violence in these cases and the trauma that shows up in the litigants and their children is insufficient because of the lack of resources, the accompanying resources?
1: Well, it's that's partially the problem, but I think the other issue is a lack of training on what domestic violence is And what is trauma? So the field of divorce and separation grew up separately from the field of trauma, and and roughly around the same time. And in divorce and separation, um, what they were, you know, the researchers said, "Oh, look, um, some of these families are more conflictual," and they said these are high conflict families, and in those families, the children had the you know the hardest time in terms of coping. But when you look at you know and, and to be fair, the original researchers on divorce, when it was a relatively new phenomenon, like Amato and like Hetherington, this was in the 70s. Um, and for example, for Amato, he's a sociologist, and I think it's terrific that he did this kind of research on what is the impact of divorce. But when he looked at over you know about 11 year period and looked at you know very large group of families, and he looked at what he calls high conflict. What he's really talking about is families in which there's alcohol abuse. I mean, they report this, but they don't really know what to do with this. And they found out that there's physical abuse, hitting, kicking, things like that. And the problem with that is that if we really understand domestic violence, so who are these families? When we say high-conflict divorce, that sounds like mutual conflict. But in families where one parent, and it's typically the father, is abusive to the mother there's a higher risk of abusing the children. Children are being harmed by witnessing this, and exposure to domestic violence is a source of trauma. So I think we get started on sort of the wrong premise that this was conflict. And to be fair, a model now refers to these families as high and low distress. And I think that's a critical distinction. I call these families that they're engaging in traumatic divorce and separation because there's exposure to trauma. Domestic violence is a source of trauma. Women who have been exposed to domestic violence have extremely high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, what we call PTSD. Children exposed to domestic violence have physical problems, they have emotional problems, they have cognitive problems. Their attachment styles are altered. The and if they're exposed to trauma, the very fundamental nature of their personality is affected. And we're talking about long-term damage. And if the family courts don't have the training to understand what exposure to something like domestic violence entails and what it means for children in the long term, they're not going to approach these situations as long-term really entrenched problems that have multiple impacts on children and their protective
0: mothers. In one of your earlier chapters, The Impact of Divorce and Separation, you cite research on the impact of divorce on the parents and on children, and how a lot of the research was rooted in the initial assumption that equality in time was the best option, with a notable exception um, for infants and preschool children who had overnight visitation more than one night a week with the non-custodial parent, they had been found repeatedly to exhibit greater separation anxiety, eating problems, and poor persistence in accomplishing tasks, which I guess is an executive functioning skill. So in other words, for these infants and children, they aren't able to develop a healthy attachment with their primary caretaker.
1: That's the critical thing. So when we're interfering, I have a client now where the child, since the age of about nine months, a nursing mom, the father had the child 50% of the time. And we really don't know what does that mean in terms of her development. The mother is the primary caretaker. She's the one who took off from work when the child was born and took an extended you know, maternity leave, and we're separating these children. And this has a really, you know, the research that I've looked at, McIntosh... And there's another. There's a group of research, researchers. Ziena, I think it's Liebowitz, and I'm, I'm forgetting the first name. Alce. I'm going to mispronounce it. I can get that to you later. But one, Judith Herman would say it alters the trauma alters the fundamental nature of the personality. But for example, we're talking now in the news about children who are separated, infants and preschoolers, and people are beginning to recognize that wait, that kind of separation from their primary caretaker is traumatic. Well, we have that going on in family court all the you're, time. You're referring
0: to the border crisis, the migrant migrant am, crisis. I am, and I'm glad that,
1: you know, it's terrible that this is happening. But in a way, it's good that people are beginning to say, hey, wait a minute, that's terrible. But, you know, this is starting to... At first, we used to have, well, in the first, you know, few years of life, there wouldn't be overnights. But increasingly, fathers' rights advocates and other people are going in and saying, Well, you know, children have attachments to both parents. So what's the difference if you split them up
0: 50-50? Barry Goldstein would would use the term father supremacist advocates because they're putting their own rights and privileges over the best interests of the child.
1: That's a good way to describe (laughs) it. It is putting your needs first, right? You know, it's going to cause your children, infants, toddlers, an awful lot of anxiety. And, you know, it's children who are, their attachment is disrupted in in that way, um, they um, have difficulty self-soothing. That's not a small thing. Regulating your emotions is a really important thing. Kids need to do that when they go to school, when they're in pre-K, when they're in kindergarten. They have to be able to handle disappointment. They have to be able to switch to different tasks, and you know, not have a massive meltdown. You know, and you know, so that they can't function in school. These are children who have a much harder time with this.
0: With regard to adolescence, you said that in your practice you found some adolescent children with special needs that they're particularly vulnerable to pressure or coercion from an abusive parent. I guess I wasn't clear about that How because how different or expansive is that vulnerability compared to the average adolescent with an abusive parent?
1: I don't know that I would say that they, are they more so anecdotally? Are they more so susceptible to manipulation? I mean, I don't have... You know, I only can tell you anecdotally in my practice that those are some of the cases that have been the worst. However, adolescents have a hard time. All children can be manipulated, and one of the signature personality traits of someone who is a batter is the ability to manipulate other people, to charm, along with a sense of entitlement.
0: You also state, there was a, an example you, you gave how in adolescence, when they're vulnerable, they may often long for a, an abuser father who has been unavailable and expresses that willingness to accept the less stable or supportive environment because the adolescent fears rejection and also because rejecting the more supportive parent, usually the mother, is safer. And yet the courts misinterpret this and make a decision at face value that may have longer term consequences and may be more permanent.
1: Well, that's, that's the dilemma in representing children, because children may long for the non-custodial parent, and particularly if that parent is not really available emotionally as they should be, if visits are missed, if... You know, they make the child really afraid of abandonment. If they play on that fear of abandonment, if you don't say you want to come live with me, then I won't see you again. I mean, these are things that my clients have told me that, you know, their children have said to them after the custody case is done. If I didn't say that, mom, he'd never see me again. Whereas they know that mom is going to see them no matter what. So I think that we need to understand that battering is not just behavior directed at the mother. You know, if you look at Lundy Bancroft's book, it's called Batterer as Parent, right? And that's an important point because their parenting style is destructive. And they can sort of say wonderful things about what they're going to do and how they care about the kids. But if you really look at the patterns of behavior, they're undermining the child's primary attachment. That's not healthy. And they're teaching the children that this is okay. Evan Stark is starting to talk about how And I hope he writes about this. He's talking about how batterers also abuse and coercively control children. And I think that's something we have to pay a lot more attention to.
0: It seems like one of the factors contributing to the challenges that survivors and their children face is the struggle for courts and the legal system to even define the term domestic violence, right? Because you've referred earlier to the term family violence was it was that, or situational partner Situ- violence situational right? right and then of course coercive control as defined by Evan Stark which we don't have a legal definition for and you've also then used the term domestic violence which i guess is what the law says versus how the courts are interpreting it
1: well that's interesting um because in the united kingdom and ireland right now Coercive control has become a crime. So it's it's they call it coercive control. I mean there might be prosecutions for individual acts of physical abuse, but now they have a broader definition because Stark's definition of coercive control is that it encompasses lots of other forms of abuse. And so while the physical abuse is very problematic, um Domestic violence, coercive control also would encompass economic abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, stalking behaviors, harassment. So, and often if you're really trying to investigate what is going on here and and where does this this family fall into these, you know, into the situation, if you hear about economic abuse, a very high percentage of those women are also physically abused. If you hear about physical abuse, I would guarantee there's going to be
0: sexual abuse as well, in most cases. So how then is the court, the family court where you practice, how are they typically defining the term domestic violence?
1: Well, I think that in the family courts, there's a tremendous emphasis on physical abuse. And I'm not saying that physical abuse is not scary and terrible and frightening and sometimes lethal. All those things are true. But. So survivors of domestic violence do not often tell you about the physical abuse. It might have happened a long time ago. And, you know, how many times do you have to punch somebody for them to stay in line, right? It's coercively controlling. I had a client who reported to me that the guy would punch the wall next to her. So we didn't have to actually physically hit her. That was scary enough, right? So that's the ways that people exercise coercive control that in the family courts really don't get recognized. That's Stark's, you know, I happen to agree with Stark's definition of domestic violence as coercive control. Kelly and Johnson have established something that they call typologies of domestic violence. And they talk about coercive control basically being only one aspect of it. Some of it is situational, some of it is separation instigated. I think the problem with that is that we don't know so somebody just gets mad and upset because they're breaking up and they're leaving. So um, it was just situational and the stress of the divorce or the separation. And I think that really means that we're not looking at the history of this family, a history of coercively controlling behaviors. What other behaviors were going on here? Were there threats to take custody? Was there physical, you know, sexual abuse? Economically, was someone being abused? Was there, you know, enforce forced credit card debt? All of those things are going to lead you to the picture of a coercively controlling relationship where people really need someone in between, the judge, to have protective orders so that
0: um, battered women not hurt and children are protected. So what are some of the symptoms that exposure to domestic violence or child maltreatment or sexual abuse in children that courts or professionals often overlook That may surprise our listeners.
1: Well, children experience trauma and adults experience trauma, but children developmentally experience it it differently because they are particularly vulnerable. I think sometimes people sort of, you know, reassure themselves that, well, children are resilient, but actually sometimes they are, if they have a protective parent, they can be very resilient but they can actually be very damaged by exposure to traumatic things like domestic violence. So children will experience a real change in the development of their personality, um, a change in their ability to establish relationships. Typically, children more than adults will regress, and that's a very serious thing. So you'll get a child who was toilet trained who will start to bed wet at night, or a child start having nightmares. Um, these are things that are symptoms of trauma, not in all situations, but you need to rule it out. Was the child sick? So did they have a fever and they didn't get out of bed? They wet the bed? Or is there something else going on here? Um, some of these symptoms are also symptoms of childhood sexual abuse because that's traumatic as well. So we need to be able to look at this. Children have increased anxiety. They have um, somatic complaints, stomach aches, you know, physical complaints.
0: What you're saying brings to mind a lot of news articles that I read around murder, suicides, or especially mass shootings. There's always some history, very likely a history of domestic violence. Those are terrible situations. Yeah. And, and to some, whether it's the shooter having engaged in domestic violence in the past or having been a child of domestic violence and there's always some sort of excuse that the journalist uses to sort of minimize the history and its impact on creating some disturbing behavior later on uh, which ultimately led to violence i'm just wondering why it is that you think when we have these cases all the time and they're so pervasive in my opinion that we're not connecting the dots better and people who are actually working in the system aren't <laughs> looking forward to make predictive des- right. you know, decisions around how their choices will impact families' health and mental health. And as you say, public health.
1: Well, so there's two issues there. One is that exposure to trauma and to multiple incidents of trauma you know, can profoundly impact someone's mental health and someone's physical health decades later. These are people who is going to be very costly. You know, if you look at the research of Kendall Tackett, she's talking about adverse childhood experiences and an increased risk of hospitalizations when people get sick and increased risks of lots and lots of medical problems. Um, so that's one thing. And the other is why don't we recognize this problem I think there's a real serious problem with gender bias in the courts. Evan Stark talks about knowing the unknowable, which I thought, you know, it's a brilliant concept, really. Like, it is so hard to look at people who are fine, upstanding citizens and then really say, hey, wait a minute, this person is a batter and this person is abusive. And they can seem very, very nice and charming. So we don't really know how to integrate you know, really terrible behavior, abusive behavior with someone who seems like such a nice guy. But in fact, domestic violence and exposure to it is very damaging to children and to their mothers.
0: So you mentioned gender bias. Can you briefly walk us through um, some of the research on gender bias and provide some typical examples of how it manifests itself in both procedure and or decision making? in ways that may harm survivors and their children?
1: That's a very good question. So there is actually a history of gender bias in the courts, in the family courts, that are very well documented. I would say beginning in the 1980s, there was a gender bias task force movement, and there were 43 states um, in which the state bar associations, which are fairly conservative organizations, had hearings and research about women's and men's experience in the courts. And they found out that, whoa, well, yes, there's a problem with bias against women, gender bias against women in the courts. There seems to be a higher standard of proof for women. Do we really believe them as much as we believe men? After divorce in the 1980s, women's standard of living would plummet while men's would you know spike and go up. So, you know, the laws about how we distribute property and spousal support and council fees were, you know, needed to be changed. But more recently, there have been three studies which I think are very important. One in New York City by the Voices of Women Organizing Project, the Wellesley Battered Mothers Group in Massachusetts did a statewide study. It's you know they used a different model and also in Arizona i think that there were about 57 counties that were actually studied and researched and they looked at women's experiences in the courtroom and they were strikingly similar where women were felt that they were afraid in the courtroom or afraid in the waiting room their advocates and their attorneys were interviewed battered immigrant women were interviewed as long with their attorneys and people you know talked about um how a lot more is expected of women of mothers than a fathers, you know, we just say, "Ah, oh, he wants to be a father," isn't that wonderful? You know, but we expect a whole lot more of women as mothers. When I read the research that said that battered, you know, battered mothers and their attorneys would be afraid in the courtroom, that was not news to me. I've experienced that as well.
0: Where, meaning, your clients are afraid, or you are afraid? Both.
1: To- where we've been threatened in the courtroom, where we've had to leave out the back door, where after five, when the staff in the courthouse is dramatically decreased and you're waiting for your order protection or a custody order, a visitation order. And so the Safe Horizons waiting room where victim advocates waiting rooms where women can wait, it's closed because it's after five. So you're sitting there in a crowded waiting room with very little court officer, you know, staff security, and these guys have sometimes taken pictures of my clients, sometimes threatened them, sometimes threatened me, gotten a little too physically close. So all of that, sometimes you're in the courtroom and you can be menaced and threatened. All of that has happened.
0: How how do the court officials, like the security guards, if they're around and see it, how do they respond? Do they intervene at all or is it something they just... I Stay think it back varies. And watch.
1: I think you have to report it. I think you have to explain what happens. They may not be noticing. I don't know that people are deliberately looking the other way. I don't want to say that. But, you know, bringing it to somebody's attention, you know, maybe there's one person and while I didn't see it, you know, might be your response. On the other hand, I have to say that sometimes I've brought it to court officers' attention and people have escorted us out, made sure we're safe um, and been very sensitive and careful about those things. So it really
0: varies. So in a way, the inconsistency itself, not being able to expect a standard of safety and security and response from the court officials is is a gap.
1: I would say so. Because I think individually, I've often found you know, the staff to be very, very supportive. It's do they recognize it? Are they prepared for it?
0: So as a result of these gender bias task force recommendations that came out of from the 80s and 90s, as, as you were referencing, there have been some statutory changes and reforms. That's right. So, one of them is a presumption to consider domestic violence and custody and child support.
1: There's even a federal resolution, a congressional resolution to that effect called the Morella Resolution. So, it's supposed to be something that everybody does. And most states have laws that say that the courts have to consider domestic violence and custody and visitation.
0: But whether or not they actually enforce that, they don't seem to. Okay, not so much. You are saying basically that these reforms, in practice, haven't made any significant changes. Well, there's one important thing that happened
1: along with that, and that is fathers began to organize and felt, you know, and expressed the feeling that they were being discriminated against, and because they didn't automatically get custody, which is sort of. Not really what was happening. Often they, you know, in the 80s they didn't really ask for custody, and now they seem to be asking for it a lot. So they organized. And when you see competing legislation like joint custody presumptions, which a lot of states now have, in those situations, judges do not consider domestic violence as much. We have in New York the friendly parent presumption where the non custodial parent is supposed to encourage the relationship with the non the custodial parent is supposed to encourage the relationship with the non custodial parent. We call that a friendly parent presumption. Well, that's very difficult for battered women to do. Is and, that
0: still expected and considered a criteria for cases yes, domestic in New violence? York it
1: absolutely is. Yes, which is like walking a tightrope. How do you do that? You might want so clients will have to say that yes, I want supervised visits, but I want my children to have a relationship with their father. You know, I think often people mean that, but they want safety. Mm-hmm. They want safety for their kids. They want boundaries and protection. They want to be able to raise their children without constant interference.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, in my conversation with Joan Meyer, even just raising the domestic violence brings with it, or child abuse or child sexual abuse, um, those allegations in it of themselves brings with it a lot of risk because of the way the courts have... Historically, in her research the last 10 years discredited it or minimized it and then in fact retaliated against those protective parents. Joan Meyer has a-
1: some interesting research that I'm really hoping comes out soon where she's looked at the impact of parental alienation theory on um, on families when the mothers have raised domestic violence or childhood sexual abuse or child abuse. And preliminarily, I don't want to speak for her, but the research was really upsetting that when, that first off, they don't really believe domestic violence in all that many cases. I think she said 55 or 56% of the cases, which means we're starting from a very low bar. So that's troubling. And then when allegations of parental alienation are believed, I would say,
0: I don't want to- Which is
1: mainly made by the abuser. Right. It's a defense. It's a defense against domestic violence. It's a defense against claims of sexual abuse or physical abuse of children. So,
0: so it w- would it be accurate to say my, my analogy is, quote-unquote, parental alienation is, is akin to the way Trump cites fake news? and then- Absolutely, it's a defense. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Right? And so when, when reporters are trying to report yes. facts... Like and and domestic and they violence say fake survivors news, right fake news. So and domestic that, an right. accusation. That's
1: a wonderful way to look at it. So allegations of domestic violence are so-called fake news. and how do you overcome that? right? You have to have people who are trained in domestic violence. And something that's very important for people to realize is the theory of parental alienation is not accepted in the DSM5. So it's not a diagnosis. It's not accepted as a diagnosis. And they're supposed to, judges, mental health professionals involved in custody evaluations are supposed to take into consideration domestic violence.
0: You mentioned Lundy Bancroft as well earlier, someone who's very seminal in uh, the research on batters, understanding batters and, and how their behavior impacts children and how they parent. And one of the things that you cite in your book is Lundy's characterization that the most defining characteristic of a batterer is a sense of entitlement. So displaying a self-centeredness and possibly the inability to place the children's needs above the batterer's needs. Right. Uh, so how do these batterer characteristics actually impact their parenting? So I'm asking you in a way to sort of summarize You know Lundy's (laughs) Lundy's research, but also if you if it's relevant, maybe some of the ways that you've seen it manifest in the behavioral patterns of the clients that you've represented.
1: Well, okay, so I had a case where suddenly the the children were very happy in their schools, and came time to go to I guess either middle school or high school. I don't remember which one it was, and the father really couldn't stand the fact that they were being educated in a school that the mother chose. And so he started a campaign of really, you know, manipulating the children, you could say coaching, you could say brainwashing, you know, whatever, he was certainly strongly persuasive with children who really weren't sure of his love. And he felt this sense of entitlement that his needs come first, he really needed to have control his, um, you know, his, Mark on where they went to school. So he yanks them out and sends them to another school after years of being in the same school where they were miserable. Um, But it was sort of to get back at her because he felt entitled to do it. He wasn't considering their needs. And unfortunately, because the children came in and said to their attorney, I want to do that. Yeah, I want to go where the new school. They left their friends. I mean, think about this. They left their friends. They went to a completely different kind of a program. I mean, you see this kind of thing a lot where kids in their junior year of high school will suddenly say, I have to go live with dad in another community. Why would a child want to change schools at that point when they have friends and they're doing well? Why would you suddenly change that scenario? And those are the kinds of things you see.
0: That actually brings me to an example that I heard through a friend. There was a a very well-off family in New York they got divorced, and the decision was joint legal custody where they split the decision making. So the father had education, and I think religion, and the mother had health care. And what did he do? Did he send them off to boarding and school? And he sent them all to boarding And he How sent them I off know to boarding that? school. Yep. How did I know and so, that? so the mother couldn't see the children because of that. Yep. Right. And it's, um, it's, that's, that's a typical tactic. I I think so
1: if there's money, absolutely. And that's a reason why people should be in charge of the decisions. Certainly people should consult with the other parent. So a protective mother should be consulting um, as much as she can, as much as it's safe to do, right? But she should be free to make those kinds of decisions because if we're saying that she's the protective parent, then she's going to put those children's needs above her own, and that's really critical in parenting.
0: In one case... You observed, you you talk about working for a judge in criminal court where the abuser's crying mm. led to the judge directing him to an anger management program. And that led me to think about my conversation with Phyllis B. Frank
1: uh-huh.
0: and decades of research that anger management isn't appropriate for batterers. That- Certainly
1: not in the child custody you know, format, and there isn't enough um, trained people to do it. There isn't enough agreement on what this kind of a program should actually entail. There's no consistency to it. I mean, I've heard people speak on both sides of this issue. Lundy Bancroft does this, but he doesn't feel like he has a huge success rate.
0: Yeah, and when I spoke with Phyllis, we talked about Emerge DV in Massachusetts which was the first batterer program in the country. And they've stated very clearly on their website, anger management is not for your partner. That's batterer intervention programs. And that's separate. Right. Because batterers can control their anger. They're just selectively choosing when to express it.
1: That's a wonderful way to describe it. Right. So batterers intervention programs, BIPs, people call them. You know, it's problematic. I don't, I don't recommend it in the context of custody or visitation in the family court context. I just don't think it's appropriate.
0: And neither did Phyllis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> her, her whole take was, um, listeners, feel free to, to, to dial back and listen to that episode again. But her whole take was that really the only thing that at a minimum can possibly shift behavior is an understanding for the batterer of his or her own exercise of privilege and male privilege and That's understanding right. power and control. Right. And
1: and I'm not saying it can never happen. I'm just saying that we really need to have a lot more research into what works and putting it in the context of families and visitation um, raises a whole lot of risks.
0: Yeah, no, I, I was just wondering At the time when you were citing that example, was it typical to be offering that or is it still ongoing that they're offering that? Because it's certain groups, at least among Phillips, Phyllis and the batter intervention program folks, they say it's not appropriate, right? Well, I think it
1: was, I'm not sure if it was an anger management program or a batterer's intervention program because it was so early on. I don't know if they had those distinctions. This was in criminal court and it was used as an alternative to incarceration. And it may be that when batterers are afraid of going to jail that they won't be physically abusive as much. You do have to have that threat of incarceration before I think it can be in any way something that works. On the other hand, you know, I think it's I really take my hat off to people who try and do it because I've talked to people and it's a very difficult population to work with. But there isn't any consistency. Who's running the batterers programs? Is it a licensed therapist? Is it a peer? How long are these programs? Are they six weeks? Are there six months? Do we really expect to have meaningful change in that short a period of time? There isn't any certification that people have to do, and I don't know of any graduate programs in terms of intervening with this uh, population. I do think we need a lot more research on what the personality of a batterer is like. We don't have a diagnosis for this population. Maybe there shouldn't be one, but it's a, it's an area of disagreement in the field as whether there should be one or there shouldn't be a diagnosis for batterers. But I think in terms of custody, that child custody evaluators, forensic evaluators, don't really understand that the charm they're seeing or the manipulation or the sense of entitlement is something that really is far more severe than they realize.
0: You also stated earlier that economic abuse and potentially how it's enacted through legal abuse, that these are areas that the court often doesn't recognize as part of their definition of domestic violence, and yet they're used as tactics Mm -hmm. to control women and the victims and survivors. And you cite Nancy Erickson, who's someone that we spoke with as well on the show, and her writing on economic abuse in New York City, and I guess... This must have been a case that she worked with, Wissink versus Wissink. The husband didn't care whether children had food, shelter, electricity, or hot water, which resulted from his failure to pay child support. And the appellate division in New York remanded the case to the trial court. But Nancy noted that the court failed to expand the concept of economic maltreatment as a form of domestic violence. Has that been updated since? Do you know if it's, it's been it updated in the case law I don't believe it has. I don't think otherwise?
1: so. But if we look at... Stark's definition of coercive control if we were going to codify that into a crime one of the things you would be able to look at is economic abuse we'd be able to recognize that much more clearly as a symptom of domestic violence
0: so you're basically suggesting that we should codify, we should change the domestic violence laws and update it to coercive control I absolutely agree with that and I'm sure Evan Stark would agree too yeah. <laughs> I agree with it Right. So what do we do to get there? I guess that's a separate conversation. That's a separate
1: conversation, but an important one. We'd have to talk to Evan
0: Stark about that too. As a response to all of these struggles that the courts have been experiencing with regard to how to deal with traumatic divorce and separation, as you call it, there has arisen several alternative dispute resolutions, or ADRs, as you've termed Mm -hmm. them, or as they're termed, and I want to walk through each of these one by one and have you just briefly list the pros and cons of each. Yeah, okay. I'll try and do that. So, okay, let's see if I can. First is substance abuse and mental health courts.
1: I think these are model courts is what we're talking about, problem-solving of courts, and there's been a lot of research that these things are very effective. But what they provide is long-term monitoring very important. They provide a very trained judge who's trained in this problem and educated in this problem, who then is seeing this person over time. And there is the threat of incarceration, right? You know, they're pleading guilty and they would go to jail if they didn't do these things. But it tends to be the research that I've looked at says that people feel good having a judge kind of care about them and be interested in them. And I think this is a model which has the most Applicability and the most potential for positive change in the family court child custody model, I think we need the services that a model court would provide, like long term low cost supervised visitation it's time that we really put you know these resources into this problem so I think that's a good thing i haven't seen them you know they're they're in domestic violence, criminal courts, you'll see more problem-solving courts where they're going to have services in place, kind of one-stop shopping. I think that's an excellent idea. Okay,
0: domestic violence courts. I,
1: In terms of child custody, I, I think it would be terrific to put that kind of resources and training. I think it would need to have access to referrals for services for batters and for protective mothers. I think we would need to have... Um, sort of a fast track for a hearing so that children would be placed with the protective parent quickly.
0: Okay, mediation?
1: I am not a fan of mediation. I don't think it's a level playing field, and I think that's a necessary ingredient for resolving problems. Um, The research that I have seen indicates that when when there's been one incidence of physical abuse that many, you know, for, for many, many years, the balance of power, decision-making is not equal after that. So if there's been domestic violence, how then are you going to have a level playing field where everybody feels safe to disagree,
0: to say no? How are you going to negotiate? And, and next is parenting coordination. So what's the difference between that? Mediation and parenting coordination. Parenting
1: coordination is something that sort of sprung up, in, I guess, in the last five ten years. It's typically not always done by mental health professionals, but sometimes. Um, some of them are some of the same people who do custody evaluations, but on different cases, right? So they are supposed to be mediating. And sometimes in some situations when the parents can't agree, they make the decision about whatever, a child's school or whatever.
0: And mediation is trying to resolve the actual case itself so that it won't go to trial?
1: It could be resolving the actual case. It could be so parenting coordinators are usually assigned after the case is finished in court. And so you can't agree on what school your child to go. You go to the parenting coordinator or you go to a mediator. I don't think we can impose these kinds of solutions in child custody. Not everybody agrees with me, but I really don't think it's a level playing field. I think it's very expensive. I think that batterers cannot negotiate, and everybody's going to be wasting an awful lot of time and money, and the problems are still going to be there.
0: Collaborative law.
1: So collaborative law is supposed to be where the lawyers and the parties agree, where the lawyers agree not to go to court, and they try and work it out outside of court. And I guess that's fine when there isn't domestic violence or other high-risk factors like untreated mental illness or substance abuse. But in those situations, I think people need a judge and they need a hearing in a courtroom and they need attorneys to help them with this process.
0: You you also mentioned supervised visitation programs. Right. In not
1: all situations should there be supervised visits. I was speaking at the Battered Mother's Child Custody Conference and someone talked about how her child had been traumatized by having to experience supervised visitation. I think the problem is that there isn't a graduate program that I know of where people are trained to do supervised visitation. We don't have that yet. So maybe some supervisors are excellent and provide a very important services. Some supervisors don't know what they're seeing.
0: You're, you're, are, are the supervisors clinicians at all? Are they social workers? Or It really they...
1: depends. Some are psychiatrists, some are psychologists, some are social workers, some are counselors, some are, counselors, some are just people who are assigned to do this today. It really varies. Um, We do need to have supervised visitation programs. That's at low cost. And it's very important to have this as a service available, to have this available evening hours, to have it available on the weekends. We need to have people who really understand domestic violence and behavior that's inappropriate for children to be experiencing. When do you intervene and say, you know, if you don't stop that, I'm going to have to end the visit. Not everybody knows how to do that or recognizes troubled, you know, situations where it's going to be potentially traumatic. Batteries should not be able to use um, the visit to stalk and find out where the, you know, the mother lives.
0: This one isn't on your list, but I'm throwing it in anywhere. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) Let's see. Because we just got funding for it in New York City, uh, restorative justice.
1: Oh, boy. I don't really feel, I'm very, very leery of this concept with domestic violence. I've been to conferences where people talk about it. I think in nonviolent crimes that, yes, we should look at other alternatives to incarceration. But so let's be clear here. Battered women, the batterers are not going to jail. If they go to jail, it's minimal sentences, right? They're not going to spend a lot of time in jail. So these are people who are pretty much out in the community to begin with. And restorative justice and what they talk about, the peace circles, is that what we're talking about here? I don't know a lot about this, so maybe I'm misspeaking. But we're sort of putting people together and sort of what what's supposed to happen then? Um, is she supposed to forgive him? Is she supposed to say, okay, let's move on? What if he's scaring her? How are you going to ensure her
0: safety? Well, I, I guess one of the reasons cited... For the need for alternatives to incarceration, as you've also cited in your book, is that not all victims and survivors want to pursue criminal cases? Right, very and, true. And and and, and the and, reality
1: is the criminal courts are and, not
0: giving and, right, and very they're not they're, they don't sentences. have their so there's some level of reform that's needed to actually correct that and maybe make adjustments to the sentencing to be more of a deterrent because clearly right now what's happening is not, so, which is why they're looking at alternatives. But the, the main issue that I have been very vocal about is why people aren't looking at the causes to why women don't want to pursue That's criminal an cases, point. which is not having, as you mentioned, very importantly in your book, repeatedly economic security and all of the services ah. and supports that they need to be able to leave and stay away from the batterer.
1: But there's also the threat, I'm going to get custody. And since that's a very real threat, that's a real deterrent to leaving. But the other thing is that I started out working in criminal court as an attorney. And mandatory arrest is really reduces recidivism. We know this. It's not like these guys are going in and spending a lot of time in jail, but just the experience of being arrested and going through detention until you meet the judge, right? And then go to arraignment and then maybe you're released on your own recognizance or maybe there's bail. But that's a very unpleasant experience. It is a deterrent and it saves lives. I mean, there's an awful lot of research on this that people can look up at the New York State Domestic Violence Prevention Office, they have a lot of research on it. I've written on this subject. The fact is that when we started mandatory arrest, and not this restorative justice approach, that homicides, femicides for women went down.
0: Well, on the other hand, I've also heard from many criminal attorneys that abusers are using mandatory arrests to falsely... Have, yeah, and accuse the victims of domestic violence so that these mm-hmm. criminal attorneys are actually representing more and more women who are falsely accused or they're acting out their trauma symptoms potentially in a situation that one might say was coerced out of them. And yet our laws haven't been updated to reflect that, as Evan would say, the constellation of, of abuse of abuse for prosecutors to look at. So they're actually moving forward and prosecuting these women.
1: That's a terrible thing. We do have what we call primary aggressor laws in New York state. I initially started writing about that when I was writing about mandatory arrest and the primary aggressor laws looked at cases in which women and men were abused at the same time. So when I was working in the criminal courts and they passed the mandatory arrest laws, The first thing that we saw, they passed the laws January 1st, uh, whatever year it was, might have been 1994 in New York State. January 2nd, instead of seeing guys come in, we see men and women coming in together. Anne Odell, Sergeant Odell in San Diego, who wrote the first domestic violence curriculum for cops, she talks about contempt of cop well, you're telling me to arrest, you know the you know the perpetrators, so I'll arrest both. So the mandate, so the primary aggressor laws, which were passed, because we know that if the dual arrest rate goes to ten percent or more, that that doesn't accurately reflect the situation, right? That's not an accurate thing. So when we pass the primary aggressor laws, we're telling the police officers that one, take a look at these people and see. Who do I need to protect? But we're also telling them, look at the relative size of the parties. Who's bigger? Um, We're asking them to say, you know, is there an order of protection in the past? What's the history here of this family? Has there been a history of of domestic violence here? And who's been the perpetrator? And from that, they can start to make a determination like, yeah, he's going to make up allegations, right? They're manipulative. That's the signature trait, right? So you know, along with entitlement. So they have to be able to parse that. And sometimes if there's been, you know, self-defense, they're
0: just going to arrest both. Unfortunately, that's going to happen. But at least at trial, it's a defense. In terms of the other players in the court system, You have a whole section in your book devoted to expert testimony and custody evaluations. I'm not going to go into that because we discussed that with Nancy Erickson. Okay. (laughs) She's a real expert in that area. Um, But just coming to your recommendations and conclusions, one of the things that I want to call out is ultimately with regard to experts and custody evaluations, you say the ongoing and Scale of the problems and lack of accountability that these individuals have, not having training, expertise, etc. That in a way it's better off for judges to just solicit direct testimony from witnesses, from the victims and survivors themselves. Well, I would say actually, I don't
1: quite think that. Okay. I do think that it should be more sparingly used. And it should be used, uh, so the use of a custody evaluator should be when there's a real issue. Like, has this child be sec- been sexually abused? And then we need someone with real training in childhood sexual abuse and good training. And that's, you know, look at Kathleen Faller's work in this area. Um, Viola, Eden, these people have done a lot of research and understanding on how to evaluate children's sexual abuse. And one thing we know is that you don't just interview them once, you have to interview them multiple times.
0: Isn't that the same thing that I'm saying? That if there's a specific situation that calls for an expert, then that expert should be called in, but not the generic custody custody evaluator.
1: That's true. Okay. Yeah. I think that we should have someone who can evaluate, for example, trauma sometimes. Sometimes um, we should have, you can also call the the therapist. I think there should be an evaluator for childhood sexual abuse. If there's an addiction problem, not every person who's a mental health professional is really trained on addiction, right? So you're going to need a specialist in this area. I think it should be, used when there's a specific problem that we really don't know the answer to and that would mean used more sparingly i think
0: aren't these individuals these experts in various mental health conditions sometimes they're abuse yeah. oh okay in in childhood sexual abuse aren't they kind of very few and far between and also very expensive are you saying like finding so- them they're they don't really exist in a lot in great abundance.
1: Well, then we need to have more training in this area. I mean, there are people who teach in this area. Kathleen Faller teaches, you know, I think there's a program in Virginia, Virginia state university where they teach and train people to interview children who might've been sexually abused, The childhood sexual abuse and how we determine whether it existed or not is very problematic. That's probably a whole other interview, but because There's this prevailing notion that mothers implant these false memories of abuse or sexual abuse to gain weight in custody or divorce. And that's Richard Gardner's theory. When he talks about parental alienation, that's what he's talking about. He's not saying, he's not talking about bad mouthing. You know, when I deal with people who are bad mouthing the other parent, and there isn't domestic violence, there isn't alcohol abuse or parental mental illness. You know, you want to get that person into therapy so that they can move past that stage. But recognizing that your child has been abused should not be confused with bad-mouthing, right? And to say that a parent can implant a false memory of abuse, well, I haven't seen that borne out by the research, so it's very problematic. So that's one of the reasons why people really don't recognize childhood sexual abuse for what it is. And they don't really understand the symptoms they're seeing. You know, Ross Cheat, C-H-E-I-T, has a great book on the witch hunt narrative, which I really recommend that people read.
0: I guess this comes, this gets to the recommendations in your books, This, you know, systemic change with regard to, for example, the medical profession and graduate education. There seems to be, how do we get more people interested in becoming experts in these areas? It, it's kind of like abortion, right like it's a if if no one's teaching it then there won't be anyone to actually oh that's an interesting
1: it. point well i think that there are people who are interested i think we have to have good training and funding for people to have more education i do think the medical profession is moving forward um they certainly understand the toxic impact of exposure to domestic violence or childhood maltreatment and i think they are progressing on this level so i think that's good
0: in so, social work school, you there was no course on domestic violence. Oh, but though, there is there? now. There, there is now? Oh, absolutely. And how, what do you think of them? How are they, the ones that you're aware of?
1: I think it depends on who's teaching it. I, would assume, I, I do find that the social work profession is, they're pretty good on recognizing trauma and domestic violence. There's some great articles to read about that written by social workers. So that I'm pleased with. I don't. No, you know, I mean, I'm teaching on domestic violence and family violence and child maltreatment.
0: And who are your students? Are they going to be law enforcement professionals or? They're graduate students
1: in psychology and on master's level,
0: right? And they're going to be practicing psychologists? Right. Okay.
1: I think the problem is if you look at the Saunders study, that's a National Institute of Justice study that went, you know, really crossed the country and looked at, you know, all the custody evaluators and beliefs and attitudes about domestic violence by judges, by lawyers, by attorneys for the children. And these were people who, you know, he would say things, his findings were kind of shocking that even when there was documentation of abuse that they didn't credit this, you know, the evidence and didn't believe that there was domestic violence or didn't take it into consideration. So I think, and I think the problem is that you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, there really wasn't education in domestic violence, in coercive control, in childhood sexual abuse. So I think people are coming out of the graduate programs now with a little more of a basis, although not too many programs on childhood sexual abuse and child maltreatment. We have to do a lot more in those areas. And I think it's going to take a while before it catches up in the legal system. In the family court, it's really... We're not seeing, you know, like sort of the, the cutting edge of research there. It's not there. It's not informing the, just the jurisprudence.
0: What kind of incentives can we offer to schools of education or to practitioners, people who are in the courts, attorneys, district attorneys, all of these stakeholders, people who work in nonprofits that peripherally serve domestic violence survivors, but don't directly, what can we offer them as incentives to actually get real training? Is there real training, that standardized training out there that you think is accessible and effective? On the graduate level.
1: You know, I don't think there's, do we want to have a consistent training? Um, That's an interesting question. Um, I think there is more education in this field. And I think that we need to have education that's really informed with the data. And not notions and misconceptions. So, you know, hearing about parental alienation and not really understanding, for example, that when we're talking about high conflict divorce, we're talking about families impacted by abuse. You know, we have to really get to sort of the basics of empirical evidence. And that's, you know, I, te- I teach my students look at the data. So, how do we do this? You know, I think that your your viewers are going to have a lot of ideas about that. I do think that we should include battered women in the process. I think they should be included in judicial selection and you know be able to talk about their experiences and have it inform the process of education and in the courts.
0: Since you mentioned the word conflict and we didn't have a converse, we didn't have a chance to talk about that earlier. Okay. Courts frequently conflate conflict as you say, and as many people say, with domestic violence. Why is that problematic?
1: Because it implies that both people are a little bit at fault. And that's, you know, she's pushing his buttons or something else like that. And that's really not fair when someone's being abused. Um, We really have to stop doing that and hold abusers accountable for their actions. And that may mean that he doesn't get custody. That may mean that he doesn't get unsupervised visits for you know a very, very long time because his behavior is not readily amenable to change. So there are some dramatic things that have to happen as a result.
0: So that's one of the reasons why you refer in your book to the set of experiences and challenges that survivors and their children confront as traumatic divorce, quote-unquote, right. right? Not as high conflict and 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 you and you bring in the trauma to i try to and integrate it. those the sort of mental health challenges and subsequent um experiences maybe as well as the domestic violence right
1: so well when i was writing the book i mean it took me about 7 years and i started out talking about high conflict divorce like everybody else and then i really looked at the literature on who is who is this population? What are we referring to when we talk about high conflict families? And the early research was talking about families where there was physical abuse or alcohol abuse. So then that's not what that's not conflict, right? Because it's not mutual. And that's what I teach my students. Like, what's wrong with this? Is that conflict? And what is conflict? It's an argument, you know, mutual, but abuse is something very different. And I think um we are reluctant as a society to really respect people who have been abused and victimized. We are uncomfortable with that. So it's easier to sort of put blame on both sides. But um, kind of writing this book was kind of a journey. And I really, you know, looked at the research and my thinking evolved. And while some of my colleagues say aren't all divorces traumatic, I think not. I think that it could be a life crisis, but not necessarily a trauma, which has a very specific clinical meaning in the DSM-5. So What I'm writing about is trauma in divorce. So trauma would be exposure to domestic violence or exposure to child maltreatment or untreated parental mental illness or substance abuse over time. Um, And so that's why I'm talking about these are the kinds of divorces and separations because it could be unmarried couples too where it's a traumatic divorce or separation.
0: And I hesitate to use this example, but I guess because it's so... It's so apt, I will, even if we were to train everybody, even if we were to create more of a supply of people, there's still going to be bias, right? right. So even if we train the judges and all of the people about the bias, there's st- still, they're still, still a going to be with bias, bias. Right? right? And it's kind of similar to what we're seeing in the political environment where that's true. there's people or there's facts There's 12 people that were last week indicted, Russian intelligence officials. And yet there are still going to be people out there who refuse to look at that as a fact and still call it opinion and for whatever reason. So what do we do about those people, especially if they're in positions of power and making decisions about the lives of women and children?
1: I don't have all the answers to that I do think we have to change the conversation so that it becomes less acceptable not to talk, you know, to, to to talk about parental alienation as opposed to, you know, abuse and coercive control and trauma. I think we have to have a lot more education. Are we going to solve every single one of these problems? No. Um the Wellesley Battered Mothers Project suggests that we include battered mothers in the judicial selection process and I think that's an excellent idea. Why not hear from her too? Not that there aren't going to be lawyers and other people evaluating this person, but let's look at what their biases are before they take the bench.
0: Why not? Well, we have to change some of the laws then because a lot of judges are elected and that's, they're elected yes. for for a lot and that's some true. of them some of them who are appointed, it's well known, I'm sure you can Confirm this that the quote unquote matrimonial positions are kind of the lowest in the totem pole and not considered prestigious, and that's something that you have to just go through. This is what I've heard, and I, and so I think pe-
1: it depends on the individual judges. But I've
0: heard that yes, but I mean I don't think that all judges feel that way. But so so people who are not interested in working on these cases shouldn't be working on these cases. Well, that's,
1: that's true. So it should be. What you're saying is that there should be some qualifications. Like, do you did yeah, you practice law in this area? But is yeah. that enough? Yeah. Can a person learn if they're interested and committed? They might be able to. Do they have the supports to be able to learn what they need? Do they have the right kind of training? Do they have training to do this? Is it enough training? Do they have
0: um, court attorneys who are trained in this area? I think we need ultimately, this gets back to the introduction. We need more people like you, Lisa. Oh, thank you. (laughs) More lawyers as a prerequisite if you're going to work in these cases you have to have a social worker mental health degree or a clinical degree or some background where you understand trauma and abuse and et cetera sociology whatever it is
1: there are people who practice i mean i'm thinking about for example Dorchen Lighthold at Sanctuary for Families and she works with you know social workers all every day and i think she has a, her her and her her team of lawyers they have a very good understanding of of trauma they see it in their clients if they have access to mental health professionals who are also trained in trauma. It has to be both things. If you're not trained in trauma, you're really not going to be able to see the symptoms and attachment.
0: We're at the end of our conversation. I have created a questionnaire for all of our guests in the spirit of Inside the Actors Studio, James Lipton's questionnaire. I've created a set of three questions. So I want to ask some of these you've probably addressed already. Okay. Maybe as a summary, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: Oh boy! Well, doesn't it really talk about gender roles and gender supremacy? And um, it's kind of a microcosm of all the things that we need to change, right? It's very—it's a very critical thing. Our our reluctance to not have fathers be. You know, involved with children when they're unsafe is very fraught because people have a strong feeling that we should have, that children can't thrive without fathers in their life. Now, fathers can be a very good thing for children, but a father who is toxic in his parenting and abusive and scary has a lot of problems and children can thrive without as much contact with that person and certainly without unsupervised contact. But we as a society are very reluctant to take that step because we put such emphasis on on men and fathers. What gives you hope? I think I'm an incurable optimist. I love it when I see my students and see them engaged and interested and committed and concerned. In particular, I really love it when a client comes back to see me after about a year and she's had custody and an order protection and where she might have been depressed beforehand and just sort of a shadow of herself. She's thriving, and that's a really wonderful thing when you see that happen. We don't see it enough.
0: What can we do more of, less of, start, or stop?
1: Let's stop talking about parental alienation, have a serious conversation about what trauma looks like in children and adolescents and adults. That we need to understand. Let's start understanding the impact of uh, traumatic exposure long term. Let's look at this as a public health problem and let's have a zero tolerance of abuse.
0: Lisa Fischel Walovic, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at K-A-N-D-U-I-T Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.